0: and pull up a deck chair, this is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well, and well. This week we have another serial killer case. It's chilling in that he was never suspected of being a serial killer until he decided to tell investigators. So tonight we go to Anchorage in Alaska where a missing persons case would turn out to be so much more. The case tonight, and you probably know, is a shocking story of Israel Keys. My references tonight is the Republic, Indiana, the Daily Sentinel, Colorado, the Whitehorse Daily Star Canada, the Burlington Free Press, the Greenville News South Carolina, the FBI, Biography.com, the Anchorage Daily News, SPLCenter.org, and the audiobook American Predator by Maureen Callahan. So before we get into this episode, a word from my sponsor, and it's a product that I think you'll be interested in. Roses are red, violets are blue. Get Manscaped as a gift for V-Day and he'll say, I love you. Our friends at Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, are here to give you the perfect gift for the men in your life. Now, maybe it's too much information, but I do like to keep the boys trimmed just like two million other Manscaped customers, and you should make sure your man does too. And for those that like to keep the bush around the playground a little bit trimmed, I'm sure you've been caught like I have, getting ready for a bit of fun, but the scrubs a bit overgrown, but never again. With the Perfect Package 3, you'll get their revolutionary third-generation Lawn Mower 3 trimmer, which has advanced skin-safe technology and features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. And it really works. It's even got a little light on it so you can see where you're going. It's also waterproof so you can just wash away all that fluff straight down the drain. And let's be real. We smelt the worst down there before. That's why I'm thankful for their Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver. These products keep these boys from sweating, smelling and sticking. And these products smell good. Their manly scent is attractive and will help Set the mood and keep things spicy whenever the night takes you. Much better than vinegar balls. These formulations are all vegan, cruelty-free, dye-free, sulfate-free and paraben-free, so you know his manhood is in good hands and hopefully in other places as well. The Perfect Package 3 will also come with a pair of Manscaped boxer briefs that'll keep his junk feeling fresh or All day. It's time to upgrade those old boxes to these really comfy ones. No more nundies falling down for me. Instead of a box of chocolates, which is a bullshit gift, get him a box of the best products for his male grooming needs to spice up your Valentine's Day. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code CAMBO at manscaped.com. Ladies, this is the perfect gift for you and your man. And trust me, he will thank you. And men, your balls will thank you. I know, they're thanking me right now. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code CAMBO at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code CAMBO. And happy Valentine's Day. And thank you so much from Manscaped. Okay, so let's get stuck straight into it. We go to Anchorage. It's February 2012 to start with. Anchorage is Alaska's largest city. It's in the south-central part of the state on the Cook Inlet. About 40% of Alaska's population live in Anchorage, and in 2012, that population was about 293,000 people. In fact, I don't think it's actually broken 300,000. It's here that 18-year-old Samantha Koenig lived and worked. She did shifts at a coffee hut called Common Grounds, situated in a parking lot on East Tudor Road and Gamble Street, around the middle of the city. Samantha, five foot five, around 140 pounds or 70 kilos, she had brown hair. She was popular at school. Now, she did skip school occasionally, as I'm sure we all did, and she did like to party, as young people, people do. But Samantha got along with everyone. She was in her senior year at Anchorage West High School and wanted to work with animals, maybe become a vet or become a nurse and join the Navy. Samantha had worked at the Common Grounds Coffee Hut for less than a month and was doing the 1pm to 8pm shift. On the 1st of February 2012, Samantha started work as normal at 1pm. Now the weather was pretty bleak and it was snowing. The Common Grounds coffee hub was on the northeast corner of this large parking lot and the two and the two sides facing the road. There were about five foot high snow banks. Samantha had messaged her father James asking him to bring her some dinner that night but he didn't turn up. I'm not sure why. Her boyfriend Dwayne had her pickup that night and he was working down the road. Dwayne Tortolani the second, had been in a relationship with Samantha for about a year. He'd moved into the house Samantha and her father shared about eight months previously. Dwayne worked as a dishwasher at Suite 100, and that's situated at 1000 East Diamond Boulevard. It's about 10 minutes' drive from the ho- coffee hut. He worked hard to save for some sort of future with Samantha. She was saving as well. And as with all relationships, of course, they have their ups and downs, but things were pretty fine at the time. As I said before, he had Samantha's pickup and had organised to get Samantha from work after his shift. Now, Dwayne finished a little bit later than usual. He did turn up at the coffee, uh, Common Ground Coffee Hut at about 8.30pm. As I said, Samantha's shift finished at 8pm. Now, when he got there, he saw the lights were off. He looked in and saw napkins on the ground and towels on the countertop. Now, he thought this was a little bit odd because he said that Samantha was a bit of a clean freak. Now, thinking she'd gone off with friends because he was late, he left and he went home. Now, when Duane got back to the house, James, her father, seeing that Samantha wasn't back, he called her phone, but it rang out and went to voicemail. Eventually, both of them went to bed with the thought that Samantha probably went out with her friends and was probably a little bit pissed and wasn't answering her phone. Not pissed as in drunk like an Aussie, but pissed off. As Aussies say, meaning she was angry. Now, at 11.30pm, Dwayne got a text message from Samantha's phone, and it read, Fuck you, asshole. I know what you did, and I'm going to stay a couple of nights with friends. Need time to think, plan, acting weird. Let my dad know. Now, later he would get another message saying that she was going away. And to, to Dwayne, this just didn't seem right. And it just didn't seem written in her style. I'm sure she <laughs> tells him off in a different style. Now, at 3 a.m. in the morning, Dwayne, for no real reason, he got up and went out the front of the house and saw a guy in a hoodie with a mask on going through Samantha's pickup. Now, they both stared at each other. For about a second or so, then Dwayne went inside, probably to get James' backup. By the time they both got back out the front, this guy had left. They went, both went back to sleep. Now, Dwayne wouldn't wake up until about 9.30am. Now, Samantha would be reported missing by the first barista to start work in the morning. As She thought also things didn't seem right as Samantha was meticulous in closing the shop properly. But the kiosk seemed like things were out of place, with napkins on the floor, towels on the benchtop. Also, the takings from the night before were gone. The police didn't take the report seriously, thinking Samantha probably just took the takings for a couple of days fun. She'd be back when the money ran out. Now, police detective Monique Dole, she was assigned to the case by her boss as he thought it would be a good test for her as it was her first day in her new role in homicide. Now, she'd been a cop for a while, but this is her new role in homicide. Now, being a small city, everyone seems to know everyone, especially in law enforcement. FBI Special Agent Steve Payne called to help out, but that help was declined as police had already formed the view that Samantha had just run off for a couple of days. No big deal. But Payne felt uneasy about this case. What he knew was this young girl, this was a young girl, he considered her a child, even at 18. Now, she'd walked off in freezing weather, alone, and had stolen the coffee shop takings, which was only really a couple of hundred dollars. You're not going to get far. And also, she was nowhere to be found. She wasn't with her friends, and she hadn't planned to go anywhere. Samantha's father, James, waited at the kiosk all day from 1pm until closing time, hoping she would come back. Now, Special Agent Payne thought it was strange that the Common Grounds coffee hut hadn't been taped off by police and thoroughly examined. In fact, they were trading as usual. So if it were to be a crime scene, then it was surely contaminated. He left calls during the day for his copper mates, but these went unanswered. But that was until 8pm when he got a call from Detective Dole asking him to come and look at some surveillance CCTV footage from the coffee hut. What police had thought of as a runaway petty theft case was now making a turn for the worse. The owner of Common Ground Coffee Shop was 2,500 miles or about 4,000 k's away and it had taken eight hours for him to get the CCTV footage to the coppers. There were four four cameras, not about four cameras, two outside the hut and two inside. Now, Samantha could be seen inside going about her duties, probably getting everything ready to close the shop as it was approaching 8pm. From one of the outside cameras, you can see a man walking towards the hut from the car park. Now, then you see Samantha serving this guy through the serving window on the side of the hut. The footage is grainy and you can make out the face of the guy, but it looks like he has a hoodie and a mask on, a ski mask. It's freezing at this time of night as well. Then all of a sudden, Samantha seems shocked and raises her hands. She then turns off both inside lights of the hut. It looks like the man at the window is holding a gun, and Samantha will go to the till and take out all the cash and give it to this man. She then kneels down, and the man will eventually bind her hands behind her back and enter the hut via the window. You will then close the window and walk Samantha out the door and they are then seen walking together towards cars in the car park. Now I will show the full video on my YouTube channel if you want to see it there. Now what I've just read I read in probably about a minute but this actual abduction and that's why I have a look at it on my uh, YouTube channel it takes more than 11 minutes This is out in the front car park along the side of a busy multi-lane boulevard. Yes, it is somewhat obscured by a snowbank, but there are plenty of cars in the car park and anyone could have seen what was going on or Samantha could have screamed for help. Now, this was a brazen act. 11 minutes. Another security camera would show Samantha break free from the man and try to run off, but she's quickly caught and taken back to what looks like the abductor's pickup. At the same time, a couple are seen walking back to their pickup close by. They enter and drive off. Samantha doesn't scream for help, probably she fears for her life with a gun held to her. This truck looks like a white Chevy pickup, probably one of the most popular trucks in Alaska and probably the most common colour. Now police collated a list of white Chevy pickups and went to interview the owners. One place they door knocked was 2456 Spur Lane. Now, that is a blue two-story pine board type house with a shed out the front. Now, when they knocked, no one answered. They checked out the pickup truck, but it had racks and toolboxes along the side. Now, the racks look welded on, and the pickup they were looking for didn't have these long toolboxes or racks. Nothing else looked suspicious, so they moved into the next place on the list, and they had about 750 to check out. The police at this stage kept the abduction out of the media they still thought that was something sus about it. They thought it may have even been staged by Samantha as some sort of stunt. They decided to front up unannounced to Samantha's place that she shared with her father and boyfriend. Now, when they knocked, James came to the door but wouldn't let him in. Instead, he opened the door enough to just get out and then closed it behind him. Single father James, or Sonny as he was known... Now, he was, he was known as a bit of a bad boy, hanging around biker bars, maybe doing some drugs, but Samantha was his world and he would do anything for her. He told police he had no idea where she was and that she'd sent him a message to see if he would take, take dinner to her that night, but he hadn't done that. Now, when they asked to speak to Dwayne, he did the same. He opened the door enough to just get out and then closed it behind him. They asked Dwayne what happened that night. He told them how he was late picking her up. She wasn't there, the lights were off, and it looked messy, unlike the way Samantha would leave it being a clean freak. He then drove home and got a text message saying she wouldn't be back. Then he told them how he saw a guy at 3am going through Samantha's pickup, but by the time he went to get James' backup and confront the guy, he'd left, so he just went back to bed. Now, when the cops asked why he didn't call police and report Samantha missing, He told them that she'd only been gone a few hours and police wouldn't do anything. The same with the guy looking through the pickup. He thought police just wouldn't care, so he didn't call. He did tell them, though, that he noticed Samantha's license missing from the pickup as she normally left it in the sun visor. Now, this all seemed suspect to the police, just the way these two were acting. So they would put 24-hour surveillance on James Koenig in the hope they would find out what was going on. Now, Samantha had vanished and her father and boyfriend were acting weird. But James Connor was anything but weird. He got flyers printed and would, be, would set himself up at the Common Grounds Coffee Hut every day handing them out. He organised her friends to go around giving out flyers. He even made a Facebook page trying to get the message out for people to look for his daughter. In his eyes, he was doing more than the police. Now, this forced the police to release the details of Samantha vanishing to the media, and the story went national. Reporters were now interviewing James and was keen to talk with him. And you can always tell when these people get fronted up to the media if they're lying or not. Honestly, and he just does not look like he's lying. He looks genuinely concerned. It was pretty obvious by this time that Samantha hadn't staged anything. Anchorage was too small of a place for no one to know where she was if she was just hiding out. But who was this guy in the CCTV footage? Where had he taken Samantha? And was she still alive? Then on February the 24th, 2012 at 7.45pm, Dwayne got a shock. There was a message from Samantha's phone. And it read, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she pretty? Now Dwayne and James race to Connor Bog Park and on a notice board they see a missing poster for a dog called Albert. Below it was a Ziploc bag pinned to the sign. Inside the bag, amongst other things, is a Xerox copy of a Polaroid photo. Depicted in the photo is a girl. Her head looked like it was being held by a man. Her mouth was taped with duct tape and next to her is a picture of a newspaper, the Anchorage Daily News, dated February the 13th, 2012. There's also a ransom note. The note referenced Dwayne and Samantha's ATM card, which had also gone missing along with her license. It stated he wouldn't use it yet, but later when he was out of the state. The note told how Samantha nearly escaped twice, and he indicated he was losing his touch. He also demanded $30,000 to be deposited into Samantha's bank account for her safe return in six months' time. Now James wasn't 100% sure if the girl was Samantha but it 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 just didn't look right to him. The girl in the photo had braided hair and Samantha had her straight. But James then really he just had to admit that it had to be his daughter. Well now police had a huge lead. Although James and Dwayne didn't have 30 grand the public had already raised tens of thousands of dollars as a reward for information on Samantha's whereabouts. Police thought this would be a great way to try and track down this guy that had Samantha. They deposited $5,000 of that money they'd raised into the account just to see what would happen. Then on March 1st, 2012, the bank alerted that Samantha Koenig's debit card had been used to make an ATM withdrawal in Anchorage, Alaska. Now, by the time police arrived, there was no one around and security cam footage was of no use either. Then on March the 7th, 2012, Samantha's debit card was used to make an ATM withdrawal at Wilcox, Arizona. So now the perpetrator had left Alaska and was in Arizona. This time the security camera didn't get a clear image of his face, but it did get the car he was driving in the photo, a white Ford Focus. Now, he only withdrew 400 here, and the card had a daily limit of 500 So only a short time later, as the clock ticked over to March the 8th, he tried getting another large sum for the card in Lordsburg, New Mexico. But Samantha's card was linked to the time in Alaska, and he was in another time zone. So he was only able to get $100 more to make up for that 500 daily limit. Again, police raced to the ATM, but the perp was gone and no usable photos. On March the 8th, Samantha's card was used to make an ATM withdrawal at Shepherd, Texas. Again, the perp was gone by the time police arrived, but now they saw that he was traveling east, so they got themselves ready east of Shepherd, Texas, putting out a bolo for a white Ford Focus. Then on March the 10th, there was another use of Samantha's debit card at Humble, Texas. He was still traveling in the area, but it had backtracked from Shepard to Humble. It, it's not much of a backtrack. It's only a short distance. Then on March the 13th, 2012, an alert patrolman noticed a white Ford Focus with out-of-state plates in Lufkin, Texas. He followed it, hoping the driver would make any mistake that would cause him to be pulled over. Then the driver went over the speed limit by a few miles per hour, and the patrolman pulled him over in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Cafe. Inside the car was Israel Keys. And also in the car was Samantha's debit card and her phone. Keyes was arrested. It was lucky he was noticed at all, actually, because that white Ford Focus he'd been photographed in in the first ATM at Wilcox had broken down. Now, when he returned the car, they gave him an identical white Ford Focus. Now, if he'd been given any other model of car or colour, he may never have been caught. He was initially charged with access device fraud because he made withdrawals using Samantha's debit card. Now, his house in Spur Street Anchorage was searched and his white Chevy pickup was seized. This was the one I mentioned before that had the racks and toolbox on it, so police had just dismissed it as they were looking for one without any add-ons. Samantha wasn't with Keys when he was arrested and she wasn't located on his property in Alaska where he lived with his girlfriend and daughter from a previous marriage. So where was Samantha? It wouldn't be long before the story came out. It wouldn't be good news for James Coney and Dwayne Tortolani II. So who was this Israel Keys? He was born on January 7, 1978 at Cove, Utah in the USA. His family lived a reclusive lifestyle and he would become one of ten children. The family originally were Mormons, but when they moved to a cabin in Colville, Washington, which, by the way, had no running water or electricity, they changed to a radical face, the Ark Church, a racist and anti-Semitic Christian identity religion. The kids were homeschooled, and this limited his social skills. He tortured animals. He thought it was funny. He would stalk his neighbors, break into their homes, and steal their guns. He had no social skills and made people feel awkward. The Keyes family were neighbours and friends with the Kehoe family who lived just down the road. Now, the Kehoe's sons, white supremacists Chevy and Shane, they're in prison now for a deadly crime spree they went on in the name of their Aryan Republic army, including Chevy Kehoe's January 1996 murders of gun dealer William Muller and his wife Nancy and their eight-year-old daughter Sarah Powell. Keyes renounced his faith when he was in his mid-teens, and he may have taken up Satanism. At six foot two, Keyes served in the U.S. Army from 1998 through to 2001 at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and in Egypt. He seemed to do well there. He liked the discipline and left with an honorable discharge. Keyes read the book Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit which is the 1995 non-fiction crime book written by retired FBI agent John E. Douglas and his co-author Mark Olshaker. Now, this would go on to become a Netflix series. Keyes started to read about serial killers and how they went about their ways. He married, he had a daughter, but then left and got a girlfriend that he would move to Alaska with, and he took his daughter with him. He would go on to run his own business, Keys Construction, and settle in Anchorage. Now, you can go online and watch a few of the FBI interrogations of keys, of keys, but you won't get much out of it. I haven't been able to find the audio-only ones, which seem more interesting, but I do have the main contents that I'll go through now. Now, Keyes is extradited to Alaska, and it's here that during interrogations with police and FBI, the keys has this sort of attitude that he holds all the power and that he's in control. And he's more intelligent than anyone else in the room. So the basic rundown of his interviews shows Keyes toying with police to try and get what he wants. Now, he wants to trade information about his crimes in exchange for keeping the story out of the media to protect his daughter. He wants a quick quick trial and the death penalty so he doesn't have to wait in prison for years. He also wants Starbucks Americana coffee, Snickers and cigars. Now, during interviews, he will tell police what he did with Samantha Koenig. He will confess to killing another couple. He will also hint at various other murders. But he won't tell investigators exact names or places. He plays this game over a period of months. He tells investigators when they interview his family, friends or workmates that they will hear of a different person than the person he really is and that he is two people and only he knows his real self. Okay, so the story of what happened to Samantha comes out. He'd been stalking the common grounds coffee hut as he would do for most of his crimes. Now some say that he planned his crimes out with military precision from the training he received in the military. But honestly that's not really the case. Yes, he did plan, he cased out location locations. He even hid kill kits around the US mainland and we'll get to that later. But it does look like he sussed out the Common Grounds Coffee Hut to some extent. He noticed that it was isolated and that there would be one woman working there. The place would close at 8pm and in the winter there were large snow banks that would obscure the hut's view from the busy road. On the night of February 1st 2012, he'd already taken the racks and toolboxes off his white Chevy pickup and he parked a short distance away from the Common Grounds Coffee Hut. It was approaching 8pm. Keys didn't know Samantha Koenig. He had no grudge against her. She was just in the right location for him at the right time. Keys carried a portable police scanner with an earpiece so he knew police were responding to an emergency on the other side of Anchorage. He approached the counter and ordered a coffee as seen in the CCT footage. Samantha made the coffee and then she was taken back aback as Keys pulled a gun on her. He then told her to turn off the lights and get the takings from the till. He would then jump into the hut via the large serving window. He then bound Samantha's hands behind her back with cable ties. He'd walk her out the door and force her at gunpoint in the direction of his pickup. Now she tried to run off, but he caught her. They walked across Tudor Road into the parking lot between the IHOP restaurant and Dairy Queen where Keys had parked his pickup. Then a couple walked close by and got in, the, in their car. Now Samantha frozen in fear with a gun pointed at her. She just didn't scream for help. Keys had told her to do as he said and she'd be fine. Then he drove to his home in Spur Street. Now here he gagged her and put her in a shed in the driveway. He turned up the music in the shed and went inside to, and sat with his family. He then realised that Samantha's phone was still at the coffee hut and that he'd dropped some of the cable ties there as well. Also, Samantha's ATM card was in her pickup that Dwayne had taken to work with him. His plan to hold her for ransom required her ATM card and her phone. Now, CCT footage would actually show her phone lighting up in the hut as her her father had tried to call her. Now, he went back to the coffee hut to get the cable ties he dropped and Samantha's phone. He would also go to her home at 3am to get her ATM card that was in her pickup. Now, Keys was the guy Dwayne had busted going through the pickup. Now, he had her ATM card and her phone. He raped, stabbed and strangled Samantha and left her dead in a box in the shed in his driveway. Now that morning, the 2nd of February, he took his girlfriend and daughter, he flew them to Houston, Texas. They rented a car from Thrifty, a 2011 Kia, with Texas license plate CN8M857, which they would rack up 2,845, uh, forty-seven miles in. They stayed at America's Best Value Inn at Lafayette, Louisiana. Now, between February the 6th and the 11th, they went on a Carnival Cruise Lines trip. It was a round trip from New Orleans, Louisiana, after staying in the Piritania Park Hotel in New Orleans. On February the 16th, Keyes robbed the National Bank of Texas in Azle, Texas. I think that's how you say it, A-Z-L-E, probably to fund this family holiday. They then all returned to Anchorage. When he got back, he noticed Samantha's body was starting to smell, even though she was frozen solid. He thawed her out and then he enacted the next part of his plan. Now, remember the photo we took with Samantha, mouth covered in tape, with the Alaska Daily News from February the 13th and the ransom note? Well, that was staged. Samantha had been dead just hours after her abduction. Now, Keys, after thawing her out, sewed her eyes open, taped her mouth as it wouldn't stay in a natural position and held her head up. Now he Xeroxed the Polaroids as her skin tone had changed. Absolutely horrifying. Now, he knew from public donations that he could ask for a ransom of at least $30,000, and his terms were that she would be released in six months' time, and this would give him plenty of time to spend the money on this crime spree he'd planned in the mainland of the USA. Keys dismembered Samantha's body and dumped her remains in the deepest area of Matinsuka Lake near Palmer, Alaska. He cut a hole in the ice to fish, and while he was fishing, he would slowly drop parts of her body down the hole. Then on February the 24th, Keyes posted that ransom note for Samantha Koenig at Connors Bog Park, Anchorage, Alaska. The FBI would eventually find Samantha's body parts in Matinsuka Lake where Keys had told them they, to look. Now that's not all he would tell them. He told them about a couple he abducted and murdered, Bill and Lorraine Courier of 8 Colbert Street, Essex, Vermont. He'd cased them out during a trip in June of 2011. He flown to Chicago from Anchorage on June the second, twenty eleven. He hired a car from Hertz on June the third. He made his way towards Essex, Vermont, picking up one of his kill kits on the way. Now, this kill kit he'd stashed by the Winooski River in two thousand and nine. You know that's a couple of years before. Now, these kill kits were five-gallon buckets filled with guns, ammo, cable ties, knives, whatever he needed to commit his crimes. He hid these kits in isolated areas close to where he needed them. These kits would mean he didn't waste time gathering his gear before a crime and lessen his chances of being caught. This would be one of his MOs. Commit a crime a long way away from home. Use gear that had been purchased a long time before committing the crime. And he was just distancing himself from these crimes. And it was his way of evading justice. On June 8th, Keys would approach Bill and Lorraine Courier's home. He knew they had no dog and no alarm. The couriers had moved to the area because it was safe and a quiet community. Keys cut their phone lines and electricity after they turned the lights off and went to bed. He found a crowbar in which he smashed a back window and blitz attacked the couriers, rushing into their bedroom within seconds of entering their home. Now he cable tied them and quizzed them over money and guns. He was able to take Lorraine's gun and he forced them into their car and drove him around 10 minutes away to an abandoned farmhouse at 32 Upper Main Street, Essex Junction. Now, Keyes took Bill Courier into the basement of the farmhouse and tied him to a stool. He then went back to the car and saw that Lorraine had broken free from the zip ties and that she was running towards Main Street. He ran after her and tackled her. He then took her back to the farmhouse and bound her hands and feet again. Now, Keyes then went to the basement to find Bill had broken the stool that he'd been bound to and was shouting, "'Where's my wife?' Now, Keyes tried to shut him up with, by hitting him with a shovel, but when he saw this wouldn't work, he got out his gun, fitted with a homemade silencer, and shot Bill to death. Keys then raped Lorraine, strangling her until she lost consciousness. Keys then took Lorraine to the basement and strangled her to death. He put their bodies in separate garbage bags in one corner of the basement and covered them up with whatever was lying around. Keyes then left the farmhouse in the courier's car and left it in the Lowe's parking lot on Susie Wilson Road. He then drove his rental car to Maine. On his way back to Vermont, he burned the property he'd stolen from the couriers. The handgun he kept but later threw it and his own with a silencer into a reservoir in Parrishville, New York. The couriers' bodies have never been recovered as the farmhouse had been demolished by the time investigators were told of their murders by Keyes. They did try to locate remains from where the demolition rubble rubble was dumped, but they found nothing. However, both guns were later recovered by the FBI dive teams. Keyes robbed the community bank branch in Tupper Lake, New York in April 2009. It's while he was committing this robbery that he procured the sexual services of Deborah Feldman, who lived in Hackensack, New Jersey. She disappeared on April the 9th and her body's never been found. FBI believe he committed this crime because he reacted when shown photos of missing persons. Now, Keyes claimed to have killed a woman in April 2009 in New Jersey and buried her near Tupper Lake in upstate New York. So investigators assume It was Deborah Feldman. The FBI were able to find a couple of the kill kits and in one they found a thumbprint on a round which matched Keyes. And when Keyes found out about this, he was pretty pissed off with himself to make such a rookie error. In reality, he made loads of errors. Going after Samantha Koenig so close to home was a huge error, especially how he made it a rule to commit crimes far away from where he lived. Now, his other rules were to attack those who happened to be in certain place at a certain time. He had no real type, and this meant that his kills were never linked. During his run before he got captured, he made the mistake of having his car captured in that security footage, and then when it broke down later that day, they replaced it with an identical model of the same colour. Now, that actually was just bad luck, but getting it photographed in the security footage was just stupid. Now, Keyes would tell the FBI vague details of other murders, and they reckon he certainly did four, but could be responsible for 11 or more. We'll never know exactly, because he killed himself while being held at the Anchorage Correctional Complex on December the second, 2012. He was able to get a sharp object into the room, cut his wrists, and hang himself. Beneath his bed were pictures of 11 skulls and one goat's head created in his own blood. Now, the FBI think these represent 11 victims, but really, who knows? There was also a note, which is just rambling garbage. I mean, if you want to read it, it's online. Check out oxygen.com, search for it there. They've got a transcription of it. Now, I'll leave you with one of his quotes when he was being interrogated by the FBI. He says, and you can get this on the May 29, I think, FBI video on YouTube. He says, My concern is that the problem is nowadays, the more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely somebody's going to try and do some kind of stupid TV special. You know how it is nowadays, with all this true crime bullshit. <laughs> Drew Grime Island's covering you, Mr. Israel Keys, And oh, there's plenty of others, too. Well, there you go, Islanders. What a strange and horrifying case. With Samantha's murder, what if Dwayne had been on time to pick up Samantha? I mean, did Keyes originally plan to take both of them? And that's why he took so long to take her? He was standing at that coffee shop for 11 minutes. Maybe he just decided it's better off to take Samantha rather than wait any longer. And what if Dwayne had grabbed Keyes at 3am when he was going through Samantha's pickup? There's so many ifs and buts on this case. Now, thankfully, he was caught and isn't active today because authorities had no idea that there was a serial killer out there until Keyes confessed. Yeah, what a crazy case. So before I go, a big shout out to all my patrons. Thank you for sticking it out for the last few months. Like I said, the island cases have only been every couple of weeks. Hopefully I can get back to this weekly schedule again. Now, special thanks to my brand new patrons, Dwayne Chin. Meet that right investments. Samantha Ray and Sandra Andrews. If you'd like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash True Crime Island. It really does help keep the lights on or the beer flowing. If you want to buy me a beer, you can actually shout me a beer without this monthly thing on paypal.me forward slash True Crime Island. Links to merch, social media, and my YouTube channel is on my website truecrimeisland.com, where you can also email me. So. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boomfuckalunga.